Good morning. Uh, You're likely wondering who I am since I have not uh, been up here before. Uh, My name is Wayne Sheely. Our family has been at CPC for uh, a couple of months now. And let me just say in that time uh, frame, we have uh, really grown to love this church and been really encouraged uh, just as we have um, sort of come alongside and done life uh, with you guys. Um, David is out of town this weekend, and he has uh, asked me to preach. And though I uh, make my living as an engineer, I previously served as an elder in a couple of churches and cities before we moved back to Columbia. So with that, let me pray for us, and, and then we'll get started. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, by your Spirit, you created all things. You I declare that they were good, and you did it for your glory. You didn't just take existing matter and shape it. Rather, you uh, spoke, you literally breathed creation into existence. Uh, And yet we look around this world, and there is sin, and there is darkness. Um, And as we look to your word this morning, we ask you to illuminate it, to help us to understand it, we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so our text this morning, as Evan read, is Genesis 3, the fall. Very light topic for this Sunday morning. Uh, I encourage you to uh, open your Bibles um, and follow along with me. I'm not going to reread the passage. It's, it's rather long. Um, but I will be pointing out things as we make our way through it. Uh, and as we've seen over the last two weeks, uh, Genesis 1 and 2 address the fundamental aspects of our humanity. Um, God created all things out of nothing, and he declared that it was good. He created man and woman in his own image. And as image bearers, we are to share in God's uh, rule over and care for creation. We are also made for relationship, not just with one another, as important as that is, but even more supremely, relationship with God, and he declared all of that to be very good. But everyone who has ever lived recognizes that uh, in this world, uh, there is much wrong. There's much wrong with human life, and there's much wrong with human beings. Um, Why is there suffering and disease and death and immense evil in this world? Uh, Genesis 3 tells us why. But before we begin, it's important to note that Genesis 3 tells us much about the entry of evil into this world, but it doesn't tell us much about the origin of evil. However, it's clear that God himself is not the author of evil. He does not tempt the human couple himself. The serpent does. It's also clear uh, that human beings were not created sinful, Um, There's uh, Adam and Eve do not disobey out of uh, their own impulse and energy. There's not yet an an inner voice of temptation within the human heart. The tempting voice comes from the outside in. It doesn't come from the inside out. And it comes by way of a serpent. That then raises the question, who is this serpent, this tempter, this, this source of temptation? In this scene, this serpent seems cunning, but rather benign, Uh, but don't let him fool you. He's no garter snake in your backyard. 
By the time the book of Revelation rolls around, he's transformed into a seven-headed red dragon seeking to devour all in his path and waging war in the heavens. And Revelation 12.9 says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And so the serpent is simply the tool of, or perhaps the incarnation of, a supernatural being, the devil, Satan. Nevertheless, this does not answer the basic philosophical questions that this passage raises. How did Satan become evil to begin with? Why did God, who is both good and who is sovereign, allow all this to happen? Well, Christian theologians and writers ranging from Augustine to Jonathan Edwards to C.S. Lewis and many others have provided compelling answers to these questions, but our task today will not be to delve into those philosophical questions, as important as they are, but to focus on sin, and specifically four aspects of sin. First, temptation, for all you note-takers, first, temptation. A second, the essence of sin, or what is it? Third, the consequences of sin. And then fourth, the solution to sin. So temptation, essence of sin, consequences of sin, and solution to sin. So first, temptation. Uh, so temptation in itself is, is not sin. Uh, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. Guess who, you know, sort of expect that. Uh, and yet Jesus was without sin, but temptation always precedes sin. It is always a precursor to sin. In this passage, the serpent comes and tempts Eve in two basic ways. He first creates mistrust in God's word. He doesn't so much contradict what God says, at least not at the beginning. Rather, he insinuates that God's word is not to be trusted. He says to Eve in verse 1, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, back in Genesis 2, uh, God put Adam and Eve in this, this lush garden, this paradise, and there are fruit trees and rivers and animals uh, in it, and he gave them only one prohibition. Um, he said in verse 17 of chapter 2, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. And this is the only boundary that God lays out to this couple. Cultivate the garden. Enjoy the intimacy of one another. Commune with me. Ride the rhinos. Or I don't know what he said, but I mean, wouldn't you if you could? I certainly would. But, but don't eat of this one tree. Now, he doesn't offer an explanation why they shouldn't eat of the one tree. He just says, don't do it. And now, at first glance, it might appear as though God doesn't want humanity to have this knowledge of good and evil. But God knows good and evil, and he is holy. Therefore, the knowledge of good and evil is not bad in itself. And Adam and Eve, too, had a certain knowledge of good and evil already. They knew good. God is good. He is the source of all good. He made all things good. So they both knew and experienced good, and presumably they knew that evil was a lack of or privation of those good things. 
What they didn't have was an experiential knowledge of evil. And so it's obvious what the serpent is doing when he raises this question. It's like if I have a bag of Halloween candy and I put it in the pantry and then I tell our kids, and we have, we have three kids, three children, and this would really apply to any of them. I could see any of them doing this. But I put, uh, put it in the pantry and I tell them, don't eat the Halloween candy in the pantry. And then one of them says to the other, did daddy actually say don't eat anything from the pantry? See, the serpent exaggerates God's command. And he, he does it by broadening it out to any tree in the garden instead of this one tree that God said. And he also, they, he also implies that the command is burdensome and unreasonable. And even the phrase did God actually say smuggles in the assumption that we uh, are, that, that God's word is subject to our, our judgment. See, the serpent's strategy, it, it, it begins to work, unfortunately, for Eve jumps on this exaggeration train, she's riding it, and says that Eve told them not to eat of the tree, and then adds in verse 3, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Again, it's, it's a weak analogy, but it'd be like one of our kids saying, Daddy said we can't eat the Halloween candy and we can't even touch the pantry door. Eve is magnifying what she, what she perceives as God's strictness. And the serpent evidently recognizes Eve's drift, and so she turns, he turns to his second strategy, which is an open assault on God's character, assaulting who God is. In verse 4, he assaults God's truthfulness. He says flat out, you will not surely die in contradiction to God. In verse 5, he assaults God's love. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. He's saying that God doesn't have your best interests in mind. He doesn't, he doesn't really care about your happiness and well-being. He's trying to hold something good back from you. In verse 5, he also assaults God's motives. He says, you will be like God. In other words, God wants to keep you down. He doesn't want you to grow into your full potential and and you don't really need him in your life. He's not your friend, as you suppose. He's your, your rival and your enemy. He's not someone you can trust. Now, Bible scholar Derek Kidner comments on this verse, says, quote, So the tempter pits his bare assertion against the word and works of God, presenting divine love as envy, service as servility, and a suicidal plunge as a leap into life. And of course, along with the assault on God comes the promise that self-sufficiency will bring enormous rewards. The twin promises your life, or sorry, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Those two promises are, are tra- tragic ironies. Since the new kind of knowledge that they gain leads not to enlightenment, and personal fulfillment, but to, to misery and ultimately to death. So that's what we learn about temptation. Uh, what do we learn about sin's essence, or, or more simply, what is sin? Well, we see that sin is not simply breaking the rules. You may have grown up in a household where uh, sin was about breaking the rules. And uh, something like what I heard as a child don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. Now, I grew up in Batesburg, so that may make a little more sense to you in that context. 
Now, there are rules, uh, certainly. There are, yes, there, there are rules. But the essence of sin isn't rule-keeping. Rather, it's, it's trying to be your own God. It's trying to be your own Lord, your own Savior. And this desire to usurp God, to be his rival, to be like God, has now passed into every human heart and informs absolutely everything we do, whether consciously or unconsciously, whether we are Christians or not. And this involves every dimension of life. For example, sin involves the emotions. We see that in verse 6. It says, The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. We are told in in chapter 2, verse 9, that all the trees of the garden were uh, pleasant to the sight and good for food. Therefore, there's nothing wrong with good food. It is a gift of God. The problem is that Eve's desire has become inordinate. It's out of proper proportion. Her desire for fruit is now greater than her desire to follow the command of God. This is important for us to remember. The heart of sin is not so much a desire to do bad things as it is a, is a desire, an over-desire, uh, or an inordinate desire for good things. The serpent entices Eve to get her own happiness, her own enlightenment, her own Uh, self-fulfillment, personal fulfillment from eating fruit from a tree. The tree itself was good, but she turns to it to get for herself what, what only God can give. So sin involves our emotions, our desires. Sin also involves the mind. Verse six continues, Eve saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So in her reasoning, she thought that if she could just get this forbidden fruit, Uh, then she would be wise like God. But what she perceived as wisdom was actually folly. She thought she knew better than God, and so she rejected God's clear command. And isn't that the essence of sin? When human reason rejects God's revelation and assumes its own self-sufficiency. So sin involves the mind. And then finally, sin involves the will. Verse 6 concludes, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who were with her, and he ate. And it's so simple, the act, if you think about it. It's just taking fruit and eating it. And it's so hard, it's undoing. Eve exercises her will. She acts. And actually, the will only does what the mind and the heart most want. So if the mind and the heart most want and are most committed to rejecting God, as we see here with Eve, it's no surprise that sinful actions soon follow. And what's interesting, if you, maybe you called it when we read it, um, is the statement that Adam was right there with Eve the whole time. Now, you know, Eve looks bad in Genesis 3. Uh, but Adam looks way worse. Um, at least Eve argued with the serpent. Like she gave some pushback. She, she challenged him, and at least was, she went down fighting, but Adam didn't even fight. Uh, he, just, he just sort of gave in. 
And because of that, we see an inversion in God's created order. So man and woman uh, were given the physical world and animals to, to care for and to rule over. And yet here we see an animal leading Eve and Adam is there, silent and yet complicit. And this is one reason the New Testament uh, places the blame for sin entering the world squarely on Adam's shoulders. Romans 5.12 says, Sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. Now in light of that, it would be easy for us uh, to pass judgment on Adam. But let's be honest with ourselves. If we had been there, we would have done the same thing. At first, there is, um, well, so that's the essence of sin. Um, and so what then are the consequences of sin? And, and there are many consequences of sin that we see in this passage, uh, really from verse 7 all the way through the end. And I'm just going to point out a few of the ones that stand out the most. First, there's shame. This is the immediate result of sin. Verse 7 says, They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Though, though the word shame isn't, isn't used here directly, isn't, uh, it's strongly implied. Uh, because this verse is the opposite of chapter 225, where we read that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. And shame is that sense of unease with yourself. While guilt is feeling bad about what you've done, um, shame is feeling bad about what you are. And so with urgency and desperation, Adam and Eve seek shelter from the other's gaze. Next, there's blaming others and blaming God. God's question to Adam is is pretty broad in verse 4. He says, or sorry, in verse 9, he says, where are you? Now, God certainly knew where Adam was. Uh, He asked the question to draw Adam out, to, to help him. It's a tender question. God's first word to fallen man has all the marks of grace here, but Adam, he doesn't interpret it that way. Adam becomes defensive and he he blames Eve. She gave me the fruit, he says. Eve shifts blame too. The serpent deceived me. This is the way that we often deal with our sin and shortcomings. We blame others, but not only that, we blame God. Adam says in verse 12, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit. Adam blames God for his sin. And then there's marital discord. God is is calling out this tendency sometimes uh, in marriage where the wife seeks to control her husband and the husband is harsh and domineering uh, with his wife. Um, He tells uh, Eve in verse 16, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. As one commentator said on this verse, to love and cherish becomes to desire and dominate. Now even non-Christian marriages can rise far above this, and yet the pull of sin is always toward it. The war between the sexes, both in culture and in marriage, is not the way things once were. That's a result of the fall. There's also economic and cultural breakdown. Because of our sin, um, our ability to work and to build a culture and a way of life is seriously damaged. Work is still a good thing. It's a good gift from God. 
But we see in verse 17 that it's also now painful toil. Work is not a curse, no matter how much you don't like your job, but it has uh, been cursed. Childbearing is filled with pain and suffering, and work has as well. This means that at times we will find our work uh, frustrating or and difficult or uh, exceedingly boring, and it will wear us down. And then finally, there's death. And I save the I save the worst for last. Uh, we see, uh, we will, sorry, as uh, verse 19 um, puts it, return to the ground. Uh, death, old age, natural disasters, and death itself are the consequences of sin. The reality is that uh, the dust of the ground wins over us in the end. And if we think physical death is the only type of death that's mentioned here, it's not. Um, Augustine, writing in the early 400s, comments, he says, he comments on this passage. If it is asked what death occurs in Adam's fall, we answer, it was all. Not only the first death when we inherit a corrupt nature, or the second death when we physically die, but the third death too which is the last of deaths, eternal and following after all. So paradise is loss. The picture of the fall and judgment is completed as the human race is expelled from the garden, expelled from the presence of God. The um, sin then um, quickly spreads. And if you know the next few chapters in Genesis, it just sort of snowballs after that. So we see in Genesis 4, Cain kills Abel. In Genesis 5, there's increasing corruption on the face of the earth, which culminates in Noah and the flood. And then there's the Tower of Babel in Genesis 10 and 11. So it's crucial for us to see how far reaching the consequences of sin are. We all recognize that murder and adultery and theft are sins and are the results of the fall. But do we also realize that Poverty, mental illness, bad government, and poor race relations are also part of the creation groaning under the weight of sin. We see the results of sin around us, all around us, and if we know ourselves well, we see them in us too. Uh, These are the consequences of sin. And lastly, the solution to sin so I won't just be a Debbie Downer this morning. There, there is light here. Uh, there, is, there is good news in this passage, even if it is hid in, in much darkness. The good news is that in, in cursing the serpent, God declares war on sin and evil. God says in verse 15 that he will, he will carry out this warfare by creating two basic peoples or groups within humanity. To the serpent, he says, verse 15, I will put... Enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. One group, the offspring of the serpent, is that part of humanity that follows the lies of the serpent. Those who believe that we have a right to judge God's word, that we can find our own salvation and happiness apart from God. The other group, the offspring of the woman, are just uh, like the offspring of the serpent. They are not naturally good people. In fact, on their own, they're just as bad as the offspring of the serpent. The one difference, however, is that 
These are the people who have been redeemed by grace. God is saying in this verse that I will raise up a people who see the lies of the serpent for what they are. This is a promise that that God will intervene in the lives of his people. The offspring of the woman, of course, is the people of God in every generation. These are the ones who by God's grace and through conversion have come to see the truth about, about sin and about God. And we also see that the ultimate triumph over sin and the serpent uh, will be carried out by a a single individual. In verse 15, there is this uh, ambiguity uh, waiting to be uh, resolved. The word offspring is in the singular tense, and that is intentional because it leaves the door open for individual fulfillment. We not only learn here that this individual spoken of in chapter three, verse in chapter three, verse fifteen, uh, will defeat the serpent utterly, for to bruise the serpent or to bruise the head or crush the serpent's head is to kill it. But in that process, he himself will suffer. The serpent will uh, bruise his heel. Here we see the first glimmer of the gospel. This individual, this second Adam, Jesus himself, will succeed where the first Adam failed, and in succeeding, he will redeem a people for himself and bring them not just to a garden, but to a glorious city with God himself as its king. May you and I be counted among those people. Uh, Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, um, our first parents fell into sin and, and we are sinners too. We feel the weight of sin all around us in our society, but also in our hearts. Help us this morning to see the devastating effects of the fall, uh, both in human history and in our own lives, so that we might marvel all the more at the glories of your son and the salvation that he brings. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.